have this morning situation all over again, just writ smaller. Everyone's on this side, and we've just got a handful right here on this. I don't know what it is that's so much more appealing about this side compared to that other. Uh, I have to look way over there to look at you, James, but I'll try to work you in occasionally. <laughs> one word is primarily a one, uh, primarily a word study, as the title suggests. And I really appreciate weeks like this one where we have an opportunity to dig in deeply on a word and uncover some things that we might not have been aware of, uh, not only for exploring the truth and having a better understanding just on a purely academic level, but really to make a good practical application. And that's what we're going to do this week. Church is one of those words that if you've grown up going to church, pretty much all of us could probably define. If I were to ask you what church means, most of us would probably say that it means the called out. That is that God has called us as Christians out of the world. He's separated us. He's set us apart to be different, to be distinct. And most all of us have probably heard a number of lessons about that all throughout our lives. Well, that preaches good. <laughs> That'll lather up really well. But to just cut to the chase, that's wrong. The Greek word translated as church, ekklesia, is derived from two Greek words, the preposition ek, which means out of or out from and the verb kaleo, which means to call. So it does literally mean those who were called out. Thus far, we're correct. And it is also accurate to say that as Christians, we have been called out from the world. We are to live holy lives. We're to be a distinct people. Any number of New Testament passages teach that. First uh, Peter chapter 2 is a good place to start where Peter talks about the fact that we're a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Peter says we're to be holy as God is holy, quoting from Leviticus. But words change meaning over time. We can't establish the meaning of a word exclusively or even primarily based on its origin. Technically, that's known as the etymological fallacy. That is, we're defining a term strictly by its oldest meaning or its original meaning. And if we look at some English examples, you can see how this is problematic. The word decimate. Now, there's a word that we might not use terribly often, but it's a word we're all tolerably familiar with, I imagine. We use decimate to mean something like to inflict great destruction. I've even seen it used in sports stories. If one team is blown out by another, they've been decimated. Or if they've experienced a, a rash of injuries, they've been decimated by injuries. What you might not know is that originally decimate was a term employed in the Roman army for the way that they inflicted a certain form of military discipline. This was applied to entire units that committed some sort of gross crime, 
insubordination or desertion or cowardice, things like that exhibited by a whole unit, so they had to punish them all in some way. And they would divide these further into smaller groups, and they would have the men draw lots, and whoever drew the short straw would be killed. Decimate means literally the removal of a tenth. It was the killing of every tenth man in that unit. That's what decimate literally means. That's its etymology. But I don't read a headline like Astros decimated by injuries and worry that they've executed Jose Altuve because the word has changed, it's shifted, it's evolved in its meaning. Or in a similar way, if we're heading out tonight and you say, preacher, that sermon was just awful. I'm not likely to interpret that in its original meaning of something that was awe-inspiring because that's something that is totally shifted in meaning. It means completely the opposite now. But if you want to tell me that, I've, I've given you an out now, right? You have plausible deniability if you tell me that was awful and you can say, oh, I meant it was awe-inspiring. If nothing else, uh, Bobby, you can use that on Robert at some point. That sounds like a good thing to put in your back pocket there. The point is, to define a word, we have to establish its meaning from its usage. And that often follows a trajectory over time from the way it was originally used to the way that it's used in a particular context. So, ecclesia. Ecclesia was used in the Greco-Roman world for the body, the legislative body of people who were called out, that's where it comes from, originally speaking, called out in a city, gathered together to decide specific issues. So in classical Greek, it was primarily used for the local assembly of citizens in a city-state. The ecclesia was the assembly. You can actually see that secular usage in the 19th chapter of Acts. That's the riot there in the city of Ephesus. The town clerk gets up and he contrasts that mob with the regular lawful assembly. The Jews then adopted that term to describe the assemblies of Israel in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, the LXX, that's simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done about 200 years before the time of Christ, and this was the Bible that was used by Greek-speaking Jews in the ancient world. So they adopted this word, ecclesia, to apply to the assemblies of Israel when they translated it. And in particular, they used it of the assembly of the people at some of the greatest moments in salvation history. Uh, so... For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10. This is the word that's used of the assembly of the people at Mount Sinai when Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments. It's used in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 14 of the assembly of all of Israel when Solomon dedicates the temple. It's used of the assembly of the people in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, when Nehemiah and Ezra were having their religious revival and Ezra read the law to them. The assembly there was the ecclesia. And when we see the other terms that are 
utilized with this in the Old Testament. The people were sometimes referred to as the assembly, the ecclesia of the Lord, the assembly of God, the assembly of the people of the Lord, the assembly of the holy ones, and there are others continuing in that similar vein. Ecclesia was used to translate a Hebrew word, kahal. Now, interestingly, this wasn't the only word that was used to translate kahal. Ecclesia was only used to translate kohal. That is, that's the only time ecclesia was used in the Greek Old Testament. But occasionally, a different word would be used to translate kohal. That other word that was sometimes used was synagogue. That probably sounds like synagogue. At least it should, because that's where the word synagogue comes from. That was usually used to translate a different Hebrew word for congregation, but sometimes it was used to translate this same word for assembly. What's interesting is that in the development of Christianity and Judaism, these words that were at one point used somewhat interchangeably diverged. And so ultimately, synagogue became the term used by Jews, ecclesia became the term used by Christians, but both of these mean gathered people. If you look at the book of James, you can actually see synagogue used in this way. James is probably the first letter written in the New Testament, so it's from that very early context when Christians were still probably using this word. Uh, in the passage I read this morning, for instance, in James chapter 2, when he talks about a man who comes into your assembly wearing fine clothing, he literally says he comes into your synagogue wearing fine clothing because those words were used interchangeably early on. Ecclesia didn't have a technical sense then of the people of God, at least the way it was primarily used in the Old Testament. Literally, it referred to them assembled together. But you can see how when it's used at these moments, when God's people are assembled at these pivotal events in their history with the Lord, that it came to acquire that connotation just from the association with those events. Furthermore, it was a, a noble word in the Greco-Roman world just because of its association with civic life and the responsibility and the pride that went along with being a member of the ecclesia. So the upshot of that is all of it made it an appropriate word for Jews to use to refer to their religious gatherings, their religious assemblies. And that meant that it made it an appropriate term for Christians to adopt too. So Paul, accordingly, uses it as the term for the actual meetings of Christians. You can see him use it that way uh, most extensively in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, for example, he says, When you come together as a church... And that's when he talks about the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for each one's eating his own supper, etc. When you come together as a church, as an ecclesia, in your meeting, he uses it a few times in chapter 14. For example, verse 19, he says, In church, in the assembly, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. Other times, he uses it more broadly to refer to the people who assemble. Uh, like the whole church, as in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. Sometimes he uses it for a smaller group, like a house church. He uses it that way in Romans chapter 16, and verse 5. But by extension, 
it was only natural that this came to be used for the people in general, whether they were assembled or not. That is, it's originally used for the assembled people. Well, now we've already got that shorthand. So then we start to use it for the people generally, whether they're gathered together here in the assembly or not. And that covers a range of meanings that we find in the New Testament. The vast majority of references are to a local church, uh, the ecclesia in Corinth or the ecclesia in Philippi, so on and so forth. Sometimes it's used in the plural to refer to a group of local churches, so like the ecclesia, plural, in Galatia. Uh, less frequently, it's used in a third sense, uh, a universal sense of all believers, the church as a whole, Jesus, uh, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, uh, the church universal. In the end, the use of this word for the people who assemble, whether they are actually assembled at the moment or not, shows that this finally developed into a technical term for God's people, for the body of Christ. And the Jewish background that we've seen had already prepared Christians for that because it was already used of the, the congregation, the assembly of Israel. So when we understand what this word means, I think that that helps us to correct some misunderstandings of what the church is. Now, we've already seen one, the called out. I alluded to that already. Now, that is a scriptural idea. We can preach that sermon. We can go to any number of passages. It's just that that doesn't really have anything to do with the word church because church means assembly. But it helps point out a couple of other things to us as well. One is that the church is not a building. Now, I imagine that most of us here tonight are well aware of that, but you will find some people use it casually that way, and some religious groups actually refer to the building as the church. Now, now here's something I think is interesting if you like these sort of word history deals. Our word church doesn't sound very much like ecclesia, does it? That's because those two words aren't related. Church translates ecclesia, but it's not derived from it in any way. The Spanish word Iglesia sounds a lot more like ecclesia, doesn't it? Because those are related. But church comes to us from a completely different Greek term, a Greek adjective, kyriakos, which means of the Lord or belonging to the Lord. And that came into the northern European languages by way of the Goths. The Goths heard the Greeks applying that to church buildings, the Lord's house, kyriakos, oikos, the Lord's house, and they started applying it to the church in general. So we have things like kirk in Scottish. If you know that they refer to a, a church building as a kirk in Scotland, that's where that comes from. The German term is similar. So if you want to talk about etymology, strictly speaking, in English, to refer to a church building as a church is, is actually correct if we go back that way. But the big point is, it's not correct when we're talking about the word it translates, ecclesia, because the church is made up of people. It's the assembly. It's not the building. Another point that emerges from this is that the church is not an organization just like any other organization. It's true it is an organization, but it's not primarily that. 
Rather, it is a way of life, a life that's devoted to Christ. It is the people of God. In the church, God made known the manifold wisdom that he had, as Paul says, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. You see, some treat the church just like they would being part of any service club or political party or even a business. They feel like they owe it the same loyalty, the same degree of support that they do any of those other groups. And so it becomes my church the way that it is my club or my party or my team or so on and so forth. But the Christian's loyalty to the church should be unique. You know, that term assembly in general doesn't really say anything about the nature of the assembly. That could be applied to lots of different assemblies, as we've seen even in the New Testament. In Ephesus, it's not applied to the church there. So there are often descriptives right alongside it in the New Testament. Sometimes those are geographical. But more often than anything else, they attach the assembly to God or to Christ. And so we see the church of God, churches of God, churches of Christ, churches in Christ. And that reminds us that this assembly belongs to Christ. This isn't my church. This is Christ's church. And that puts this on an entirely different plane. Our loyalty is to him and to his way of life. Closely related to that, the church is not just like a social club. That means it's not about the enjoyment or the entertainment of those who are members of this assembly. It doesn't exist for itself at all, in fact. It exists to honor the God it belongs to. It exists to worship Him. It exists to accomplish His will on earth. Now, yeah, there are other benefits of it. There's a fellowship that should provide us enjoyment. There's love and there's encouragement. There are other purposes it serves, but it's fundamentally not self-centered. It's God-centered and centered on looking out to other human beings, not me. That's what the church is not, and there are probably other things we could list. But if we want to say what the church is, and if we had more time we wanted to go into more depth, there are a number of images that are used for the church in the New Testament, there's the family of God, there's imagery drawn from the agricultural world, you know, the vine and the vineyard or uh, the sheepfold. There's imagery drawn from the architectural world. You're the building of God or you're a temple of God. Uh, in a more comprehensive study, all of those are fruitful for understanding the church. But this is why I think it's so important for us to understand what the word means, not the called out, but assembly. Here's the one big take-home point. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. The word itself calls attention to what is most important. Assembly. People who meet together. Now, I recognize that this sort of lesson is probably lost on a Sunday evening crowd because you realize how important this is or you wouldn't be here. But the church, by definition, is an assembly. That's what the word means. It's the people who meet together on a regular basis. To be a church, you must meet. A family is not a family if you don't meet together regularly. 
not in any meaningful sense, or if at the very least you aren't sustained by memories of past meetings and longing for those future times when you might be able to be together again. The church may survive. It won't thrive. It's not good. But it may survive where there's poor religious education. It may survive where there's little evangelism. It may survive where there's almost no benevolence. But it will not survive where it does not meet. That's fundamental. And that goes for formal assembly times, like gathering here tonight, or other less structured times, like Daniel announced, sticking around together on Wednesday evening, just hanging out there, living life together. This is how we confess who we are, for one thing. We proclaim that we are God's people. We're a people gathered by God, created by Him and by His grace. We're dependent on Him. We're honoring Him. Think about all of those associations of ecclesia with Israel there and their relationship to God. It's drawing on that background, that relationship we have to it. But it not only reinforces that, proclaims who we are, it helps us live our lives together. There's strength here. There's solidarity here. Living this life of faith together. I've talked about this a lot before, and this is the real point of Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer says that we ought not to neglect meeting together. That's not about skipping out on a service. It's about continuing to meet together on a regular basis because the whole point, as he says, is to stir up love and good works in one another. We need that encouragement. I think of one of Aesop's fables. You probably know this one, some of you. The lion and the three bulls, or sometimes it's four bulls in other versions. But at any rate, a lion sees these bulls out in a field, and he's a lion. He's hungry. He really wants to eat them. But they're always there together. They're watching each other's backs. And so there's no way he can get at them because they'll fight him off. And so he hatches a plan. He sneaks in there and he starts whispering to them one by one until they start to quarrel with each other. And pretty soon, instead of being all there tightly packed together in the middle of the pasture, they're all in their own corners. And then he picks them off one by one. And the whole point is, there is strength in unity. That's the idea behind us coming together and assembling together. It's important. You can't be the church if you don't meet together. And the take-home question for us tonight is, do we take this community seriously? Do we recognize not only the responsibility that we have to God, but the responsibility that we have to our brothers and sisters here in this assembly, this community, this ecclesia, this church. If you're here this evening and there's something amiss in your life, some way that you're out of step with what God's will is and you need to make changes, you have the opportunity to come now and make your need known while we stand and while we sing. Kneel at the cross, cross.